0: Hi, I'm Will Ross. I'm Devin Scott. This is a new episode, and in this new episode, we're going to talk about horror maestro Wes Craven and how his films A Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and Scream all engage with metatext. That is how their stories are self-aware of their own structure and making and are in part about those things. We've brought back author and critic Mike Thorne to dig into these movies. So,
1: welcome to Film Formally.
0: We brought Mike Thorne back to talk about spooky stuff. But before we talk about that, Mike's actually got something spooky of his own to plug. You want to quickly introduce (laughs) yourself and uh, say what that thing is, Mike?
2: For sure. Uh, Yeah, thanks again for having me, guys. I am Mike Thorne. Uh, My debut novel, Shelter for the Damned, is coming out through Journalstone on February 26th. It's available to pre-order directly from the publisher. You can also get it through Barnes & Noble, Walmart, or Amazon.
0: And it's got sort of a suburban horror focus, right?
2: Yes. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, when we were kind of batting around ideas for this episode, we were talking about um, suburban horror cinema and different filmmakers who I think have had an influence on my work. And Wes Craven was one of the names that we all uh, landed on as uh, a really good entry point to suburban horror.
0: The suburban horror of your book uh, happens to be a fixture of the films we're discussing today, but it's not quite our primary subject. We're talking about meta-horror in Wes Craven's movies. More specifically, we're talking about how the Craven-directed entries in the Nightmare on Elm Street series and the Scream series interface in overt and explicit ways with the mechanics and ethics and ramifications of making scary stories. So our main focus is going to be on the films A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984 the 1994 sequel, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and then the 1996 comedy slasher, Scream. I've only seen Craven's Nightmare and Scream films, and I basically got totally introduced to him for this episode. And I know a bit of his background, but I'm sure you're more familiar with him than I am. So in the spirit of Metatext, do you want to talk about how his career kind of led up to Nightmare on Elm
2: Street? So West Craven uh, has a very unusual background for a horror filmmaker. He was raised in a strict Baptist household where he was actually not allowed to watch any movies aside from Disney movies until basically until college. The first film he saw was uh, that wasn't a Disney film was To Kill a Mockingbird when he was in college. Um, And he had a background in his undergraduate degree. He studied uh, psychology and English literature. And he went on to do a one-year uh, master's degree in English literature and philosophy. Um, and he actually started out uh, teaching uh, English at a uh, college. And then he taught high school English literature for a while. And eventually kind of uh, stumbled his way into the film world. I mean, that's, that's not entirely accurate in the sense that he was always interested in it. But it, it was basically following his instincts more than anything. And eventually he connected with a uh, a man named Sean Cunningham, who fellow horror enthusiasts will recognize uh, his name. He's the director of the first Friday the 13th film. Um, and the two of them banded together to make a little micro-budget film called The Last House on the Left, which um, released four years after George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead kind of initiated this new era of Um, brutally political, provocative um, horror cinema. He was part of the same generation as people like Romero, who I just mentioned, Toby Hooper, um, and John Carpenter, these American filmmakers who were drawing on their outrage at governmental and institutional corruption and bringing that into the genre in really compelling ways. So I, I don't know if that's an overly long intro, but that's kind of where Craven comes from originally
0: notable that he has somewhat of an outside-in perspective on horror, as well as being a director who obviously, from what I've seen of his stuff, has a very thorough understanding of the mechanics of horror filmmaking and horror storytelling. He moved into making Nightmare on Elm Street following his first significantly studio-funded film, Swamp Thing. It was somewhat of a passion project, right, in Nightmare on Elm Street, where he pitched it to a bunch of studios and the only one that showed pretty immediate interest of the major studios who could just fund it out of pocket was Disney, but they basically just didn't want it to be a slasher film. They were they wanted a family-friendly version of the concept of battling with a monster from your dreams. It does sound logical as a family film, and I think one of the interesting things about Wes Craven's films that I've seen is how they interface with storytelling for children and the way that kids interact with stories and grow from stories. But so getting right into A Nightmare on Elm Street, I think it might be fair to say that A Nightmare on Elm Street is Craven's most influential. I mean, I, it's, it's tough. It's tough to chart. It's t- a little tough to chart the influence of any one slasher film just because so many were coming out at the same time.
1: Usually slasher films are like there's a murderer, the murderer is a person, and they're killing people. <laughs> I guess that's part of the definition of murder. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street, actually, this is actually my first viewing, Uh haha. And part of what surprised me was how overtly, just from the get go, it's a ghost story. I had never really considered the slasher genre as a genre that could make space for that level of departure from kind of a, hey, crazy person kills people reality. So to to me, it it was the first time I'd seen that, and that that, at this late stage in my life.
2: Yeah, that's, that's interesting to think about how Nightmare on Elm Street is playing with conventions of a ghost story. I'd say, in some sense, all slasher films have dealt with this folkloric and also um, very specifically gothic trope of the return of the repressed. Like Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers are also both linked to these kinds of sites or moments of trauma that then become mm-hmm. communally known and understood. But I think Craven is tapping into that. He's, he's definitely tapping into that structure, but he's also bringing in surrealism. I think that's one of his most inventive interventions is the way he's playing on, like he cites Bunuel and Cocteau, and also the way he's toying with reality or the the membrane of reality becomes thinner and more mm-hmm. porous. Um, and And that's something that really no one had done, certainly not in mainstream slasher films, but. I mean, Craven is unusual in the way that he kind of reinvented the the mainstream American horror game three times with Last House on the Left in the 70s, Nightmare on Elm Street in the 80s, and Scream in the 90s. That's pretty rare where three consecutive decades, someone will have that enormity of influence, you know?
1: And I would also argue there's a fourth film that we'll get to eventually today um, that should have reinvented the genre, but it didn't. And I'm retroactively very angry at the at the residence of the year 1994 uh, about that. Uh, We'll get we'll get to that, though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A Nightmare on Elm Street. So uh, for those who haven't seen it, I feel like it's a film where it's pretty. It's not unreasonable to spoil the plot in broad strokes, which I can't say about the other two. We've all seen The Simpsons. (laughs) yeah Devin was extremely familiar with the plot of this film I was shocked at how
1: close it matched the the Nightmare on Evergreen Terrace um I like that is a straight up remake with Willie have you seen that Mike
2: Sophie actually just introduced me to it recently because I didn't grow up watching the Simpsons so I was talking about like how I taught the Raven to my English lit students and she's like oh have you seen the Simpsons episode I was like so so I, I went backwards maybe uh, yes, yeah, I've, I've seen uh, it. Now.
1: That's backwards. Is not seeing the <laughs> Simpsons parody. Yeah, I, I, I always feel like there has to be a term for like people who see the parody first, um, and there has to be a specific term for people who see the Simpsons episode first, like Simps- Simpsonian displacement or something, because um, that's how I <laughs> experienced like The Shining, Pulp Fiction, Nightmare on Elm Street, especially. Like I, I always like, oh, now the scene where they go and fight Freddy in his dreams because I saw the Simpsons, anyways.
0: <laughs> um. So for those who don't know the plot of <laughs> <on Elm> Street*, <laughs> it's about these it's about these teenagers in a town and uh, they start like having similar dreams about this scary dude in a green and red horizontal striped sweater and a fedora. And as if that wasn't scary enough, he's trying to kill them in these dreams. And they start waking up with wounds from the dreams and they start going, hold on a minute. That's not how <laughs> dreams are supposed to work. And then they start getting killed in these dreams. The physical effects of being killed in these dreams by this uh, sweatered man named Freddy Krueger manifest in reality as well. So someone can be strangled, someone can be like dragged across a wall and ceiling uh, covered in blood in like one of the most spectacular (laughs) visual sequences in any slasher movie. So eventually the final girl of the film, Nancy, finds out who this Freddy Krueger guy is and as it pans out he is a child murderer (laughs) a bunch of the parents in the neighborhood including her own killed him with fire and now he's back to take revenge by killing all of his own killers kids in their dreams one of the most interesting things about both of Wes Craven's nightmare films is that uh, they immediately open uh, with a dream which, uh, rather than a lot of films, which set the uh, state of reality as kind of the baseline expectation for how things are, immediately uh, sets the displacement of a dream in place as kind of our opening familiarity with the world. Which is a good way to set us off balance. Yeah, I
1: think, I think that the way that there's a rhythm between this film and Craven's sixth, or no, sorry, Craven's second nightmare film, but the sixth, I believe, nightmare film in general. Seven, um, seventh. Seventh.
2: Wh- yeah, Seventh,
1: seven. oh my word. That's a high number. Um, <laughs> In 10 years. But yeah, wow. Um, but uh, that both films climax by blurring the lines between reality and increasingly uh, convoluted layers of unreality um, where you are no longer sure exactly where you are. And that lack of sure footedness is kind of the heart of the horror. Uh, it's, it's what puts you off balance.
2: I'm glad you both suggested that we start with the first Nightmare on Elm Street film, because as I was rewatching it, I realized this really does set up Craven's meta interests, especially in terms of the way we often think about cinema as a dream state. Even I, I was thinking about the idea of director as God that plays into New Nightmare. But Freddy Krueger saying this is God has he uh, I think this is the scene when he slices his fingertips off. The film is definitely playing with the yeah the fabric of reality and unreality, and also with this ongoing interest that Craven has in the desperate importance of dreaming or of stories, but also of their power and even their potential danger, both of repressing stories or dreams or of unleashing them.
1: We're talking about meta horror and (laughs) self-referential horror. And this almost feels, if we're looking at this in the context of like this being essentially a series with New Nightmare, which is kind of how I like to see it, um, this feels like step one of the framework that would become New Nightmare (laughs) where it's not quite self-referential yet, but it does lay the groundwork for having a reality that is in question. But it's it's still self-contained within a wholly fictional framework. It hasn't yet, loop back on itself.
0: Yeah, A Nightmare on Elm Street is kind of the kind of horror film that academics love to talk about. And then New Nightmare is the kind of horror film that an academic would make. (laughs) This is what I mean when I say it's the kind of film that academics love to talk about because it's so interested in not only presenting reality versus unreality, but in challenging the tipping point of unreality, right? And challenging us to recognize them in the moment when we recognize something as unreality. To that point, one of the more interesting things about A Nightmare on Elm Street is that eventually it even challenges our recognition of that tipping point. Late in the film, it becomes increasingly difficult to identify the moment when dreaming stops and ends. And after the apparent dispatch of Freddy by uh, Nancy turning her back on him and not being afraid of him, uh, she walks outside and is immediately in an idyllic daytime place where all of her friends are still alive, her mom is still alive. It quickly becomes clear that this too is a dream. After carefully setting up and intensifying these, uh, this logic of movement into dream states finally shatters that logic altogether in the end, which is a very despairing kind of view of uh, realism, also uh, ends up, I think, being pretty decisively reversed by the other films that we're going to talk about today.
2: That ending is, I think, definitely vital for the way the film functions um, in terms of rendering that barrier between reality and unreality permanently unknowable. Uh, and that, that's part of what makes the film so scary. This brilliant conceit that he developed of dreams having material effects on our real selves, on our corporeal selves... That also, I think, leads into his interest in uh, what is the relationship between "quote unquote" reality and cinema and cinema storytelling, or even and or storytelling more broadly.
0: I think this is a good moment to bring up one of Wes Craven's famous quotes, where he said, uh, "People don't go to the movies to be scared; people are scared." Said that in an (laughs) interview with uh, Charlie Rose. He's more the more common quote uh, that I've seen is horror films don't create fear they release it but I couldn't find a source for that quote so I can't confidently say it's an actual <laughs> quote but he did say people don't go to the movies to be scared people are scared which is kind of the flip side of the same perspective. So the idea is that horror films are not culturally useful and artistically successful because they introduce anxiety or trauma into the audience and the wider culture, which is what I think a lot of critics of horror films feel that. But what's useful about them is that they allow the audience to confront those things that they wouldn't have otherwise Mm -hmm. been able to confront or articulate. So seen through that lens, it makes some sense that Freddy's presence in A Nightmare on Elm Street is uh, the mark of lasting fears and memories, not from Nancy, uh, his kind of primary target, but from Nancy's mother, who was one of the parents who helped to burned Freddy to death decades earlier. So this specter of Freddy has hung over Nancy's home life for her whole life. Uh, Implicitly, it made her father untrusting and overprotective. Her parents uh, seem to be separated or divorced. And it's made her mother neurotic and alcohol dependent. And so Freddy is, in a sense, the manifestation of this trauma that existed in their lives long before he appeared. And it's only after uh, her mother fully explains what happens that Nancy feels somewhat empowered to do something about Freddy.
2: I'm glad you brought up that quote uh, by Craven, which I tend to agree with. And I think A Nightmare on Elm Street reflects this philosophy that you can't get rid of Freddy Krueger by not talking about him, by pretending this uh, communal trauma never happened, that this horrendous violence never happened. We need to express and release and exercise these fears. It's actually, it's not only healthy, but it's necessary. And Craven, I think, folded this into the logic of the plot in that he, he talks about how this, this idea, don't fall asleep, is, is kind of the, the central, I don't know if you could say the central message of the film. And he says, you can take that politically, you can take that philosophically, you can take that spiritually, don't fall asleep. You know, stay awake, stay aware.
0: And it it ties in also to um, Nancy, what she believes is the final blow to him is turning her back on him and saying, I'm not afraid of you anymore. And of course, it doesn't work. And he immediately returns in the ending
1: Uh, of the three films we're talking about today. It's the only one where I was like, while I was watching it. I actually took it as a horror film where the other two films, I kind of was just giggling the whole way through. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. Um, But this film was actually
0: like a harrowing experience. And then the other two, I'm just like, well, isn't this delightful? (laughs) (laughs) So let's move on to New Nightmare. Wes Craven's New Nightmare is the full title of the film. It's not New Nightmare. And unlike A Nightmare on Elm Street, this is a film that I think genuinely you could benefit from going into not knowing much about it or not knowing the plot points of what happens. So this is a case where I would encourage people listening to this who think they might have any iota of interest, go watch it. The only thing I'll say to you is that you should know before you watch it that New Nightmare came out 10 years after A Nightmare on Elm Street. It was uh, the seventh film in the series after the sixth film officially, quote unquote, killed off Freddy Krueger once and for all. And it was the first film since the first film (laughs) to be directed by Wes Craven. Furthermore, it's worth you knowing that Heather Langenkamp, who plays Nancy in the first film, after she appeared in that film, when a sitcom that she was in was cancelled, she ended up dealing with a stalker, and that stalker sometimes pretended to be Freddy Krueger. So knowing all these things go Watch Wes Craven's New Nightmare uh, and do it today. If you don't think you'll do it today, then screw it. Just listen to the rest of the podcast because, you know, if if someone tells you, like, go watch this, don't let us spoil it and you're not going to watch it today, then usually people just don't watch it. So for the rest of you who either uh, are okay with us spoiling it or have seen it before, Wes Craven's New Nightmare is about Heather Langenkamp. And it's not about her playing someone else. It's about her playing herself. She has a young son. She has a husband who works in special effects makeup. Ten years since the first Nightmare on Elm Street. She's a bit lower profile as an actress at this point. Definitely best known for a Nightmare on Elm Street. And she's been getting harassing phone calls from a stalker who pretends to be Freddy Krueger. So she gets approached by a producer from New Line Cinema who... The, that was a studio that was basically built on the Nightmare on Elm Street film's financial success to come and make one last Nightmare on Elm Street movie, The Ultimate Nightmare, uh, because Wes Craven is writing a new strip. Everything in this film's setup is more or less based around the reality of what was actually going on. And it turns out that Wes Craven, when he made the Nightmare on Elm Street idea... When you tell stories about this ancient evil force that comes at you in your nightmares, then it contains that evil force within those stories. I hope I'll cut a bunch of that synopsis, um, but like you kind of have to like go long in talking about this movie because it's just so dense and complex <laughs> in its in its narrative uh, setup and in its kind of metatextual stakes. This is not a disparagement to the other films we're talking about today, but I think this is by some distance of the nightmare films and the scream films, like the most complicated of all of them. And in a way, like it contains all of their ideas within just this one film. So someone else talk about this for a moment because my head's already spinning trying to hold this all.
2: Well, I think for me, it's kind of like, yeah, the skeleton key to Craven's filmography, especially when we were were talking about this idea of um, horror films acting as a vital social catharsis and what that actually means. Um, I love the dialogue scene between Heather Lung and Camp as herself and Wes Craven as himself um, when he says, The problem happens when the story dies, and that can happen in a lot of ways. It can get too familiar to people, or somebody waters it down to make it an easier sell. Or maybe it's just <laughs> so upsetting to people or to society that it's banned outright. However, it happens when the story dies, the evil is set free. Um, so he 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 talks about yeah Freddy Krueger within this lineage or this tradition of folkloric evil. This it, he he's kind of a, a transcendent entity, and the the way the film tries to contain that entity, I think, taps into Craven's ideas for Freddy Krueger originally. Like when he was designing the character Freddy Krueger, he was thinking about the unconscious. Uh, he he said like, "What is?" pre-human in terms of our fears. And he he said, it's not a knife. It's not even a sharpened stone. It's a claw. So he tried to tap into that with Freddy Krueger's weapon of choice. Or he read an article in the Scientific American that said, red and green are the two hardest colors for our brains to process side by side. So that's why he designed Mm -hmm. Krueger's sweater that. So yeah, he's tapping into something unconscious, pre-human. He's really going deep into our brain stems. And then to configure it within this very uh, complex philosophical structure is just mind bending and kind of ingenious. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. That line you cite, I think is a, it almost boils down. It's, it's, it's Wes Craven, the character and the writer slash director, two different entities overlap in many ways, but not always. I mean, that's him taking a swipe at the commercialization of his creation the censors who misunderstand his film, who are also embodied in the, um, the doctor character who kind of basically blames Heather, the character Heather Blankencamp, for her own victimization um, by saying, oh, it's that, those horror movies you're, you're making. They're basically poisoning our kids. And in the film, he also goes after um, fans who like the movies for the wrong reasons. I mean, you have not only... This is done a number of ways, but I especially remember the limo driver. Who um, who's like oh those mm-hmm. wonderful kills and um, in the commentary Craven actually goes oh with you know it's kind of based off fans he's met and he's like well with fans like these who needs stalkers and, um, <laughs> and I'm like wow that's 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 that's, that's harsh um, but no um, I think the film is um, defined by Craven's ambivalence uh, towards his own legacy um, you know I think he he clearly I mean, the film's plot is revolves around the idea that these films and horror films and just scary stories in general are essential to dealing with our own fears, but that commercialization, gratuitous love of violence, and censorship and misunderstanding all contribute to a negation of the power of those stories, and therefore the evil can return, at least in this film. But yeah, it's it's all... Part of why I love this film is it functions so well as both an allegory and... A multifaceted allegory. I mean, it isn't just a single target he's going at. He's he's making a pretty grand statement about the state of storytelling, and it also I think just works fantastically as a wacky. It's it's it's, it's the slasher eight and a half. It's a slasher adaptation, um, and I don't know. I, I just a digression here, but it's not often that you know I'm I'm pointed to a film that I've never heard of and it was not on my radar that instantly becomes like oh wow this was made for me. <laughs> but this film is kind of West Craven, West Craven uh, mashing all the buttons that I like personally in, in cinema.
0: So uh, I'm going to be pretty effusive about this and digress pretty much constantly. That conversation with Craven again is, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's. The heart of the film
1: he basically um he wanted to turn his character into a slightly more less pure version of himself where you know like that isn't his house they actually rented this incredibly expensive malibu mansion for the scene um apparently he just lives in like some beach house somewhere and um same thing with robert Englund. actually what's that oh lived i'm so sorry um and he also deliberately implied during the scene that the character Wes Craven had mixed motivations, right? You know, you're not quite sure whether he's completely motivated by this pure need to like stem the evil or whether he kind of is using Heather to make his movie, right? And hmm. he, whether or not he cares about her safety is in question. And that's what he says was the point of the scene. And then he actually admits like, maybe I got it some sort of deeper truth about myself. I don't want to admit there. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, That that's such a, that was a, it's, it's an amazing moment of candor there. I don't know.
2: Yeah, and he he is grappling with this. um, I mean, it's an inherently vexed idea of the director as God. I think that's so embedded Mm -hmm. in the fact it's a Mm -hmm. problem that I think has to be uh, has to be attended to in some way. I mean, and I guess we're diving full on into spoiler mode. But I think it's really interesting that at the end of the film. Um, the Heather Langenkamp character says everything she shot, she thought or experienced was bound within these pages. There was no movie. There was only her life, but her movie is her life. Um, and, and, and so are yeah, we're, we're kind of called to question how that logic plays out in terms of Craven as the writer and director of this film as well.
1: The scariest scene, in the whole film to me is actually the scene where, um, the son's name is Dylan, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Just to make sure.
2: Played by the great Miko Hughes.
1: The scary scene, the whole film to me is where uh, you you intercut from uh, Dylan climbing the rocket ship in the playground to uh, you know uh, Heather and um, John, uh, the actor who plays her father, who is just a father figure kind of. <laughs> in Real life it's yeah. all also messed up. Um, just a pal. <laughs> just a pal who is a bit paternal. Um, yeah. Paternal pal. The intercut between their conversation and Dylan climbing the rocket ship, and there's so much tension and. and Freddie is nowhere to be found in that scene. This is not a slasher scene. This is like a kid making a mistake on the playground scene or, you know, uh, doing something a kid would do. And it, there's just this really real down-to-earth parental fear there. I don't know, It's a mark of what this film does differently than I think you would expect from a slasher film because uh, the fear here is not this gory death. It's this real-life thing that parents are just afraid of when their kid plays at a playground. I don't know. Um, uh, the film feels designed for adults in a way that even wes's other films are not
2: i think it taps into part of freddy krueger's function and what uh, craven sees as integral to the horror in a lot of his work is the um threat to innocence and 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 another inspiration for freddy krueger originally a lot of people have probably already heard this story but when craven was a young child he he was in his bedroom late at night and glanced out the window and he saw This guy on the street dressed an awful lot like Freddy Krueger, who was visibly drunk. Um, And the guy looked up and he made eye contact with uh, Little Wes and gave him this kind of creepy look. And Little Wes, very scared, ducked down below the window. And he says he waited what felt like five, even 10 minutes, and then looked out again. And the guy was still standing there and gave him a really creepy kind of lunge and smile um and apparently the guy started rummaging with the the gate to the i think it was an apartment building or something and it's but yeah so he's he's interested in um this uh malicious uh, effort to subvert or destroy innocence whatever that means and i think dylan plays that vital role in the film so there's something parental in there
1: There's also a lot of um Oh no! Well, I think that I don't know if it ties back to our, our main theme, but I have a thought on that too, and that's that um, that ties into another kind of refrain in all every West movie I've seen, which is um, this this idea that adults don't take children seriously, and that um, children's fears are somehow discounted or gaslit out of them, even though they're totally valid. Um, and New Nightmare kind of transitions that into this adult fear, where uh, it's it's not a we're not seeing it from the child's point of view for, for once. We're seeing it from the mother's point of view. I think that's part of what gets the film kind of an interesting ambivalence about it because we're finally seeing an adult character who is, through personal experience, able to empathize with their child and uh, take their fear seriously.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, Craven talks about how this um, kind of archetypal figure that he's drawing on comes from his, his background in, in Greek mythology and Greek literature and philosophy, this kind of Cassandra character who is embodied by, you know, um, Sidney Prescott in the Scream films as well. And yeah, I think Nancy slash Heather, too, who is able to see the the near future truth and everyone else around her is just, you know, gaslighting her or dismissing her. Um, So I think that's like a really vital, tragic uh, structure he's playing with.
1: And just, to, and just to kind of, uh, I just want to quickly define a term because I think that was a really good reference and I want to make sure that we kind of can explain it. Cassandra is a character in Greek mythology who is cursed to give out prophecies that nobody believes essentially.
0: Yeah, I think it, it is worth noting that there's an early scene where Heather, the character, is reading a uh, bedtime story, Hansel and Gretel, to her son. And this is after he's already like shown signs of being like frightened by things and uh, is acting unusually. You know, there's stuff about like a witch being thrown into a fire and howling in pain, and she gets disturbed by that, and she's like, "I don't think I should read this to you; it's too scary." And then he like immediately recounts the entire next page uh, to her horror and says, "Like, keep reading." So I think it's noteworthy that her reaction to her own son's fear is to try to suppress it, right? Like, tell him, "Like, don't be mm-hmm. afraid; there's nothing to be afraid of." Um, and I think part of Craven's point is number one um, that uh, we've been hearing these scary stories since we were a kid. They're good for us, right? Like it's partly through the Hansel and Gretel story that he has the idea to leave uh breadcrumbs in the form of sleeping pills for her so she can follow mm-hmm. him into uh into the dream world and uh save him from Freddy. I just want to give a quick shout out to the sound in New Nightmare because it's like arguably as far as like just all the quote unquote like technical craft elements of the film, it might be the one that impressed me the most. Just scene by scene, Like there's always great ideas going on. Even things like after she runs across the freeway uh, to try to rescue her son from Freddy, we cut to her running to her home and you can hear sirens in the distance. And then almost immediately when she goes inside, the sirens just completely shut off. And this might be a good moment to transition to talking about. That is the moment when maybe the film's single most like brilliant gesture happens where uh, I was hoping
1: we would get to this because this, 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 <laughs> this moment threw me, I think. That, uh, yeah, go on, Will. I'll, I'll stop.
0: Yeah. So she <laughs> bumps into uh, John Saxon, who, as we said, is her kind of paternal uh, figure/slash friend and played her uh, father back in The First Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, she had called him a little earlier to get, try to get his help, but um, hung up before uh, she could explain. So he showed up at her house. And so she gets there and he's there and Dylan is there and uh, he says, oh, Dylan's fine. Uh, Do you mind if we talk outside, Nancy? And then as they walk outside, she says, why do you keep calling me Nancy, John? And he says, "Uh, why do you keep calling me John? (laughs) (laughs) She looks and sees like a police badge on him and she looks and sees that his car is now a police car. And this isn't foregrounded, but if you look carefully, you can see that the street is no longer her like home in Hollywood. But yeah. it's the street from Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, it well, is Elm Street. Well,
1: fun story. <laughs> fun story. They originally wanted to film in the original Nightmare on Elm Street house, but couldn't get permission. So they actually redecorated the Heather Blankenkamp character's house as as her Nightmare on Elm Street house. As, as Nancy's, Nancy's house. house yeah. um, however, that is actually not Heather Blankenkamp's real house. <laughs> this gets <laughs> very difficult to talk on. about. But on on that note, I I want to point out one thing, which is um, there's one wonderfully ambiguous line that has a dual meaning in that moment where um, where uh, Heather now kind of having realized that she's Nancy is playing Nancy and says, Freddy Krueger, you know, um, uh, I forget. Uh, She she says, Freddy did it. And then John, now playing her father, says, Nancy, Freddy's dead which again that's a line that works perfectly well in the in the universe of Heather as it does in the universe of Nancy because Heather's dealing with a Freddy that has been killed off in Nightmare on Elm Street 6 <laughs> or 7 no Nightmare on Elm Street 6 <laughs> yes. and Nancy is dealing with uh, the plot of Nightmare on Elm Street 1 it, it's it's brilliant I love it <laughs> yes it's just this perfect mix of realities where it becomes impossible to actually talk about without having. A, I feel like I need a flowchart.
2: The film has a kind of Ouroboros structure. Like it really does devour itself in a way that's so interesting to me. And I think actually that's a lot of what horror does. It gives us uh, manifestations of our unconscious fears that then we subsume or we exercise. Um, I, I actually also just wanted to make a quick note uh, in response to Will's thoughts on the sound design, um, because I, I revisited some commentaries to a few of the films we're talking about today. And um, it's interesting to hear how Wes Craven, um, as, as someone who was an avid bird watcher his whole life, is very particular about almost subliminal or unconscious uses of animal sounds, especially after scenes of extreme horror. So he's really attentive to like which bird would be in which region at what time of day, or even the way he employs dog barks, especially in suburban environments. It's it's really, really meticulous stuff. So I, I just wanted to agree. The sound is...
0: This might be a good point to talk about. We've we've talked a little bit about the ambiguity of West Craven, the character's uh, motives as a character. And now that I think it's a good moment to talk about her other collaborators, um, uh, specifically John Saxon, who's like, Playing John Saxon, playing her dad, as well as uh, Robert England, who plays himself slash uh, Freddy Krueger. Yeah, because one of the things <laughs> that is because just to just to
1: confirm, he still plays Freddy, not the Freddy from Nightmare on Elm Street movies, but the Freddy, the eternal demon in this movie as well, right?
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> Which I think is important.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's important too that he looks different than early permu- earlier permutations of Freddy is a new mm-hmm. like almost more menacing appearance, the makeup design.
1: Yeah. Apparently they wanted to distance him or Wes wanted to distance him from the kind of what he saw as like the stand-up comedian, Freddie, that mm-hmm. was in the later nightmare films. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. What I want to bring up here is that so the immediate read of that scene where John Saxon says, Why are you calling me John? Um, is like, oh God, John Saxon is becoming uh Nancy's father the character from the first Nightmare on Elm Street, and he doesn't even realize it, and she's just being thrust in this world. But I think there's an alternate reading where John Saxon gets the call from her. She says, "Freddie's here. I know that sounds crazy. And he says, that does sound crazy, but he doesn't dismiss her immediately. And I think there's a reading that he goes to her house understanding that now is the time when they have to start becoming the characters from the first Nightmare on Elm Mm -hmm. Street. Mm-hmm. Um and I know there's nothing to directly suggest that specifically John Saxon has been getting these dreams or these phone calls but earlier we see a scene where Robert England is on the phone with Nancy uh with Heather and she says like uh, yeah it's like a new uh I see this Freddie in my dreams but he's like and he's like oh you like you see me and she's like no he's different and he goes darker scarier and she goes yeah, yeah. and then um he at the end says um, he can't meet her um, because there's something he has to finish. And then it cuts to a reverse angle and it shows that he's painting this image of Freddy uh, yeah. emer- in hell or emerging from hell. It's a little hard to say. I um, actually want to
1: get you both your interpretations of that because that was a big enigma for me on both viewings. I, I still don't quite know what to make of that. Um anyways that's a, that's a that's a sidebar but I'm really Well
0: curious the the reading personally. I'm getting into is I think yeah. there's again there's two alternate readings of Oliver of Collaborators um understanding of the reality one is the John Saxon didn't know what was happening and he is unwillingly uh morphed into uh the reality where he is Nancy's father um and that's kind of the immediate read and the other one is John Saxon knew, and he understood that the, that he needed to be a part of creating this story, and so he assumed that role. And similarly, Robert England uh, has some understanding that he needs to assume the role of being Freddy, Right? That he he's like creating this painting almost as a way of uh, of designing his new appearance in the role of Freddy. Then we never see him again because he literally assumes the physical form of Freddy. This kind of dueling uh, possibility for awareness and motivation on the part of Heather's co-stars slash collaborators is on one hand, just like an interesting way of uh, exploring different readings of the meta text. But on the other hand, I love it just because it it suggests all these complex narratives on their own with like very, very minimal <laughs> exposition or, or story. It's one reason why like, I this movie is incredibly dense to me but does that sound plausible as a reading Devin? i, I mean it's still enigmatic either way oh, i think it does
1: um i kind of had a i mean but my own personal reading while trying to suss it out in my head is heather and her colleagues are all on kind of their own personal journeys in dealing with this and so robert england is dealing with it by painting about you know Depicting him, mm-hmm. he's still depicting him in his own small way in his very expensive mansion that is actually owned by a um, by a doctor, <laughs> uh, by a cardiologist um, in real life. Um, and John is dealing with that in his own way, and maybe he's playing a part. Like I, that did occur to me the idea that he's self consciously playing a part, and then Heather is also dealing with that in her own way. They're all, but they're all playing their roles again in some way, right? Except apparently Robert Englund's role is to skip town. <laughs> Uh, i'm
0: not sure how that maps onto it but um he skips town because he's going to become freddy
1: i guess yeah
2: i guess it takes a long time to apply all that makeup
1: yeah (laughs) so i guess he's actually playing freddy in both our universe and in the film's universe in that ending yeah
0: that's why he's defeated at the end the makeup gets melted off
1: yeah and unfortunately robert (laughs) anklin has to be um, has to be killed (laughs) <laughs> in our reality, <laughs> and um, we must kill Robert England to defeat the ultimate evil.
2: And um. <laughs> I, it's also really interesting when uh, Robert England shows up as the earlier Looney Tunes. Well, what has become a kind of Looney Tunes version of Freddy Krueger on that talk show mm-hmm. um, appearance, which is a phenomenally weird scene as well. And we're still dealing with several layers of media in that sequence. Um, so, yeah, we do see that earlier permutation of Freddie on screen as well.
0: So that seems like straight out of the network, you know, where it's like this parody uh, of what studio audiences respond to.
1: <laughs> well, except in this case, they have a real, the, like it's on a real guy's show. Like the, the guy playing, I, i never, I don't watch what? entertainment news, but yeah, the, that's actually like a real entertainment news guy that who's playing himself. Um, the interviewer, which I think is lovely. Um, but no it, and then halfway through the scene, um you know it transitions to from Robert England going like clowning it up to like he 's Freddie now, you know in, in that moment, right, where the kind of claws create that very um uh, obvious shadow on heather's face, and' I don't know it 's a very disturbing moment where you're not quite sure it, it does kind of introduce the whole like is this all in heather's head <laughs> right because is she just reacting negatively to trauma that that has happened in her past, or is Freddy back in some weird way. And turns out it's the latter. Obviously there's no ambiguity in that. There's no, no. (laughs) this isn't curse Uh, of the cat people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Can we talk about the, the fact that the major plot point is Heather reading the script of the movie. She actually takes a cue from the actual script to the film that she's in. And the film ends with her then reading the film. We just saw to her son. Yeah. I, I have no real thoughts on that except that it's, I, I thought it was delightful, but I'm sure that there's something more there. Um, do either of you have anything smart to say about the inclusion of the actual script inside the actual diegesis of the movie?
0: I, uh, to some extent, uh, yeah, I think the the script's presence is uh, self-explanatory. The fact that it is found in hell, the script is specifically something that you have to go to hell to find, I think, is uh, you can read that a number of ways, whether it's like the uh, challenge and difficulty of undergoing the creative process or having it be something that you draw out of hell and turn into like a comforting children's story. The movie has an opportunity when Heather finds the script in hell to read ahead, right? To to say like, okay, here's how Heather defeats Freddy. Now she has the script and she can read ahead and she can use that to defeat Freddy, right? She can know what's going to happen she can break the bonds of determinism by knowing her fate uh, and knowing that she can change it. Right. And I think that would be a very valid uh, uh, place for the film to go. The point that the film is making is not that Nancy is uh, that Heather is, um, (laughs) is um, um, somehow uh, tortured by these stories, but that these stories are a way for Heather to, exercise her own demons right like i suspect that the real heather longencamp not to not to overly psychoanalyze her from uh, a movie where she plays herself but she is by doing that somewhat inviting the uh, the idea i suspect that heather longencamp partly agreed to this movie because it was a cathartic way to deal with the terror of having been stalked by a guy Right. And a way to resolve her own feelings about whatever they may have been about participating in the Nightmare on Elm Street films. So the idea is that being in a story and making these stories is difficult, but it's worth it. And it's uh, both uh, liberating for the people who make them and it is useful for society at large. Now, the idea actually does come back, I think, like, because I think Scream is basically a movie uh spoilers where the character not literally but the character ends up defeating uh uh, the slasher by reading ahead right by like flipping the script by flipping the uh, conventions of the script and that's a case of uh less of the idea of saying like hey stories are good and more of saying like hey there are problems with the conventions that we've become too attached mm-hmm. to in these stories. I don't want to get too ahead. But that's that's my take on, on kind of on the script. Hey, it's that mo- sounds kind of almost- like Scream. <laughs> yeah, the, the script is more interesting for what it doesn't do than what it does do in some ways, mm-hmm. I guess is my point.
2: A really interesting and crucial distinction between how Wes Craven's new nightmare is functioning versus how Scream works is that um, New Nightmare is very specifically about the creators, whereas Scream is very much about the viewers. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of embedded in the fabric of the way these films work. And I think that's actually part of what, to me, makes New Nightmare so much more complicated because, uh, you know, if you're making a film about the pr- process of making a film, there, there, there becomes that kind of uh, really complex feedback loop we're talking about. Whereas the, making a film about the experience of viewing films just structurally is, is inherently a little bit less, <laughs> I don't know what the word is, complicated, I guess. Interestingly, I think the Scream films, as they proceed, and I don't want to go on too much of a tangent here, but each sequel, Craven and Williamson, are consciously bringing the characters in the narrative closer to creation, so the second film has uh, Sydney Prescott studying drama. It begins and ends on a stage. The third mm-hmm. film begins in a movie theater, or sorry, that the second film begins on a, a, the stage of a movie theater. The third, the third film brings us into Hollywood and onto a soundstage recreation of Sydney Prescott's house. And then the fourth film is about um, the the kind of more toxic elements of social media um celebrity these kids who want to recreate these horrific traumatic um experiences to you know have a fast track to stardom so i think that's built into the scream films it just it it happens more right. gradually
1: oh, I, th- I think this is a great way to transition into scream but first i have one more note about new nightmare part of why i love new nightmare is that it explores all those avenues without ever feeling like it's just doing it to be clever or doing it to be like, you know, Oh, look at this. Aren't aren't we cool? There's a purpose to everything. There's a purposefulness to its lack of seeming like decorum about itself that I just love. And part of why I find a lot of reactions about even, even recent reactions on like (laughs) letterbox and stuff where um, people are just like, Oh, this movie thinks it's so clever. I'm like, yeah, cause it is. (laughs) (laughs) it's really clever I feel like a a common kind of theme of this podcast is like there are films out there that are misunderstood that are underappreciated this is like exhibit A Um, I remain mystified as to why this film isn't more appreciated it's wonderful I think it's I I haven't I haven't sat with it long enough to call it like a masterpiece or whatever but it could be um I just need to sit with it longer um it's one of my favorite horror films it Imme- immediately became so after seeing it we're bu- we're about to get to you know Wes Craven's follow up to this which plays on a lot of the same ideas in a much more I think accessible way that's less far up its own ass and therefore I think <laughs> and it, it does a lot of new stuff too and I think you know deservedly made a big splash as a hit, but I'm, I'm so sad this film didn't make an impact because it, this should have been like a watershed moment in the genre. This should have been like, this should have been the psycho of the nineties. You know, it, it's amazing. Please watch this movie. If, if nothing else, uh, it,
0: it's, it's just so damn well made. It's not like a bunch of good ideas done poorly. It's a bunch of great ideas done really well. So Wes Craven made new nightmare and he was feeling like, okay, I'm pretty much done with horror.
1: Really? That was his I ad, think he wow. had been,
0: for years, even before he made New Nightmare, he was wanting to move away from horror. Yep, yeah. He was going to keep looking for projects that were not horror for him to make. And then uh, someone sent him this very, uh, as they say in Hollywood, hot script. Uh, Scream was just like, was from a guy who had only sold one script before, but it was one of those scripts that just like everybody in Hollywood talks about. And like a bidding war was started on it. And then... They were just looking for the right filmmaker to make it. And uh, when I say they, I mean, to my chagrin, the Weinsteins. Oh, no. Yeah, there's no, no getting around that, I'm afraid. No. Yeah. Happily, they lighted on Wes Craven as a good choice. Scream, the idea is it's like on the surface a very, very standard slasher mystery whodunit where these uh, teenagers are being murdered by a masked figure. And everybody's just trying to figure out who done it as more teenagers get killed. Then the second half of the film all takes place at a party where more and more teenagers are getting killed until finally the killer is revealed and the final confrontation happens. I'm like, that's that's just what Scream is.
1: That's actually the conception. That's exactly the conception I had of it going in.
0: You know, without continuing to be glib about the on the surface premise, the real premise of Scream is: what if the kids in the slasher movie had all seen slasher movies? Mm. Um, With the with the extra little twist of except the final girl, uh, has not seen is is not like a slasher movie fan. Like everyone, everyone in this movie is like very aware of slasher movies. They know the tropes. One character in particular can like rattle them off, um, like nobody's business. Um, Everybody knows that this guy and like openly acknowledges that this guy is just like ripping off um, other masked slashers like Jason or or Michael Myers. Um, Everybody knows and part of the open pleasure of the film is that they're not just using like detective-like crime-solving clues to try to figure out who the killer is, but they're trying to understand who the killer is by reverse-engineering the tropes of slasher movies. And so because of that, because the film is about characters who have seen slasher movies, it's like how Shaun of the Dead is a movie uh, about People in a zombie apocalypse who have seen zombie movies, right? <laughs> like um, it can, it is just such a natural uh, setting for comedy that Scream. Depending on your persuasion and your and your sensitivity to horror films, granted, but uh, for me, and I think for all three of us, I suspect the film functions ultimately, for the most part, more as a comedy than as a horror. Which is not to say that there are not genuinely frightening parts of Scream. <laughs> Um, I think at this point, though, Scream has been weirdly subsumed into popular consciousness as like just one of a line of slasher films.
2: In one of the documentaries about the making of Scream, I'm trying to remember which one, but Eli Roth described it as like an adrenaline shot to the American uh, American horror film at the time because the genre was really in a kind of static, bland place. Uh, The sequels to the big franchises were not faring very well. They weren't particularly interesting movies. But it's interesting to me because I think Scream both did that, but it also, in a way, called out all the bluffs of the genre um, in a sense that the genre has never walked back from. Like I feel like we're still living in a very post-Scream era in terms of mainstream horror. We're still under the shadow of Scream. In ways that I find really fascinating.
0: I mean, you've got what like what '90s horror movies that changed the game? Like Silence of the Lambs, I'm sure. Uh, Blair Witch was huge, um, mm-hmm. and Scream. And I'm not sure you can really say that any other film rises to the level of those as far as like just changing the landscape of. You're horror saying
1: movies. Bram Stoker's Dracula was not the game changer <laughs> they wanted it to be? Well,
2: I'm afraid so. In terms of Craven's comedy background. I think he might have right before Scream made Vampire in Brooklyn with Eddie Murphy. So although weirdly enough, Eddie Murphy was really insistent on playing that part straight. So Wes Craven was like, how am I supposed to direct an Eddie Murphy movie where Eddie Murphy very stubbornly does not want to be funny? I also wanted to make a quick note that the relationship between um, real life violence and movie violence becomes... Um, built into the fabric of Scream in ways that I also think are worth parsing out and that aren't explicitly um, discussed in the film, but to me substantiate what the film is, is reflecting on like Kevin Williamson when he first wrote Scream um, he was drawing a lot on a real life serial killer, Daniel Rowling known as the Gainesville Ripper um, who murdered like five college students in Gainesville, Florida it was over a really short time span. I think it was within a week in like late eighties, early nineties. And he would arrange the bodies in these grotesque tableaus and West or Kevin Williamson thought, Oh, that reminds me of Michael Myers from my favorite horror movie, Halloween, um, which of course finds its way into scream in a really, I think brilliant sequence that we can talk about. But um, and also the fact that uh, the, the film crew wanted to shoot in this real Santa Rosa high school and the school board got up in arms about it when they got a look at the script and they said, these kids are joking about disemboweling people and stuff like that. And, and the principal is, is swearing at the students calling them little shits. And they said, like, we can't, we can't allow for this kind of material to, to be shot on our school grounds. So they're, they're like the way in which this censoriousness and this kind of like crazed puritanical thinking um bled into the production i don't know feels like fantasy imitating reality in interesting ways
0: yeah the the uh the credits it's worth noting uh have one credit that says no thanks whatsoever to the santa rosa city (laughs) school district governing board
1: (laughs) i noticed that that was interesting Uh,
0: it's it's one of the best credit put downs this side of Titticut follies
1: this is me being really pedantic, but I would say definitely
0: horror comedy for
1: me. Like, I I can't really separate all the comedy from... Like, there's parts of the film that are, like, on the edge of your seat.
0: Like. Well, I mean, it's worth noting that the first 13 minutes of the film have very, 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 very little that could be considered comedic at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also notable that those 13 minutes were written
2: far before the rest of the script.
1: I was wondering that. It feels like a short film uh, before the film. That yeah, sense.
2: it's a... It's an extended homage to When a Stranger Calls. I just wanted to note that. Because When a Stranger Calls, yeah, infamously begins with what feels like this perfectly constructed film sequence where the the ultimate twist is that the uh, psychopath is calling from inside the house.
1: Is that where the phrase, the call is coming from inside the house, comes from?
2: Yes. (gasps) Yeah. gosh.
1: That fills in (laughs) such a bit of pop culture trivia for me. Oh, my
0: gosh. Good movie. Whoa. The sequence isn't massively important to the rest of the film, other than the fact that the caller famously asks, "Do you uh, what's your favorite scary movie?" and quizzes her about scary movies. But it's it's not the most important metatextual moment of the film, other than that, and um, Drew Barrymore uh, basically being the Janet Lee type, famous person who gets killed shockingly early into the film. But I just want to note that it is an extraordinarily well-directed sequence. Like clearly, oh, yeah. Wes continuing uh his peak from New Nightmare. Arguably uh better direct, better camera direction than anything he even did in New Nightmare. Just a
2: tour de force. It
1: feels like he like discovered that steady cams were a thing and was like I can use this.
2: And that anamorphic frame too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yep can't praise enough if that was just a 13 minute uh, short film i would think it was a smash success other than one unfortunate awkward cut to remove something that was censored to keep the film's r rating intact
2: yeah that's frustrating yeah there craven rails against the mpaa and censorship in general and all the scream commentaries i mean it's just like non-stop and, and and a lot of the cuts they they um force him to make, to me, ultimately take away from the audience empathizing with the experience of a victim in pain, you know, like you're cutting so that the violence has less impact, which to me seems counterintuitive. If you think about like the impact of movie violence, Um, I I just wanted to note uh, uh, in that opening sequence, they, they have that conversation about horror films where she mistakenly says the killer in Friday the 13th is Jason when it's actually Jason's mother. But I, one of the visual choices that Craven makes that I love in the opening scene is that uh, visual cue, the aesthetic texture of the blue on the TV screen that so many of us who grew up in the 90s uh, remember it's like this um, unconscious trigger. I'm about to watch a movie and the way that blue yeah. bleeds into the frame, I think is just like beautifully handled
1: when I forget which of the killers is on the phone at that moment, but when whichever of the, the guy on the other end of the phone says, it was actually Jason's mother. Um, I was like, this is the best depiction of film Twitter I've ever seen. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Perfectly captures the dynamics. Um, yeah, it doesn't have to do with anything about this movie. uh, (laughs) Wrong again. (laughs) I've, I've only watched these three of, um, of craven's works but you both have gone up to screen four which was his last film was it
0: yes yeah
1: um and a good I think final a film f- very good final yeah. film yes i think there's a there's a straight upward trajectory
0: in craven's camera direction throughout these movies actually <laughs> does that continue through to screen four in your opinion uh i would say i mean i know mike is a fan of scream three and i've tried so hard to like scream three but i would say it is it's It takes a bit of a dip in Scream 2, but it's still quite strong. And then Scream 3, I think it's like just plummets. And then Scream 4 <laughs> might be his best looking movie that I've seen. And that was shot um, by Peter Deming? I, I, yes. Yeah. It's a beautiful looking movie.
2: Yes. Yeah. Same DP for all of them. Yeah.
0: I uh, mean, Scream- No. Wrong. Scream 1 was shot by Mark Irwin. It was Jason's mother who shot <laughs> Scream 1. <laughs> Yeah.
1: (laughs) So that's what happened to Mark Irwin. He was Cronenberg's guy. And then Cronenberg was like, Peter Krzyzewski, you're in. Mark, goodbye. Um, Poor
0: guy, because he's clearly a tremendous cinematographer from Scream. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. As far as the kind of the meta-textual elements of Scream go, I I, I actually watched Scream first. But in hindsight, I totally see why. This film caught on in a way that New Nightmare didn't, in that um, this film is... Far, far easier to just take as a simple slasher film um, that has a twist, right? It feels like a slasher film with a twist. It feels almost like, um, again, the fact that Craven did not write this movie and the project did not originate with him frustrates my assumptions of it a little that I kind of went into this recording with, actually. I did not know that backstory, so I'll cut this. But um, <laughs> the uh, my assumption going in was, oh, this is clearly him kind of retooling the things he was playing with in New Nightmare in an attempt to make them basically work more in a slightly more conventional mold, which I think is still true, even though I, the creative process obviously did not, did not involve that.
0: Well, I think there's a reason he said yes to this script, right? I, I think that's why of he course. said yes to the script.
1: Because New Nightmare really, I, I don't think there's any way of watching New Nightmare that, has any sort of integrity without having seen the first Nightmare on Elm Street, right? You have to have watched mm-hmm. that decades that decade-old film at the time to really understand New Nightmare. And the film is very much about, as you said, the act of filmmaking. This film is, mm-hmm. I think, just is a really good slasher film that has a metatextual layer that you can either choose to grapple with or totally just see as window dressing. And it works either way perfectly well. And I mean, the worst case is if you're watching this film in the most shallow way possible, you're watching a great slasher movie with Matthew Lillard chilling, chewing the scenery. And that's (laughs) just You you would say
2: Matthew Lillard.
1: (laughs) Of course we have to, we have to grapple with Matthew Lillard at some point in this.
2: Oh, he's so good. I love Matthew Lillard. (laughs) I think the, um, like the voice of these two writers, um, stand stood out to me watching them in close succession this time. Like, I think there's a, there's definitely a warmth and an emotional authenticity, um, and a commitment to the integral role of story in New Nightmare. Um, whereas Scream is like, I think it's its very much a film of this kind of postmodern coldness and a postmodern kind of, the, like the viciousness of the satire, I think is part of what makes it work for me. It's not just this kind of glib, tongue-in-cheek attitude. There is there there is a kind of nastiness to the uh, meta-textuality and to the, to the satire that is very much not present in West Craven's new nightmare which to me is very like a very beautiful film about family about um the the mother people. and her son yeah it's about people scream is is about um yeah they're both they're they're both about social concerns as well but yeah scream is is uh, colder
0: yeah, I would say there's only one character as has warmth for it. And it's, it's the lead character, but it, this is not a film where the lead character is overwhelmingly dominant in screen time for the film. It's a film that is interested in the way that mechanics determine behavior and determine outcomes, right? It's not about how people make these choices. It's about how mechanics and uh, tropes and the uh, internal logic of things creates outcomes right up until again like the very I, again this is why it's no coincidence that sydney is treated with more warmth and humanity direct humanity than the rest of the film because uh spoilers uh, at the end of the film she's the one who like ultimately just like flips the table and achieves victory uh within a genre that very often sees just like entire cast either wiped out or a killer going free to kill again But she achieves victory largely by just flipping the table on the paradigms that are governing the rest of the film.
2: Actually, and I think that's a big part of what sells this film is just the cast is so phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Like, we talked about Lillard as well. But Nev Campbell as Sidney Prescott is just unbelievably good.
0: I don't know who's better between her and Lillard. Like, I think Lillard is doing more, like, crazy. Like, it's more impressive on, like, a pyrotechnic level of, like, you can't do, you can't. Do that in a movie? You can't <laughs> act like that. What are you doing? And it works still, and it's that's impressive. But like Nev Campbell is like doing like such emotionally complex work, like and it's more quote unquote classical, but like that doesn't make it less impressive. And she's also doing that while like managing the tone of the rest of the film, right? Because it's not like you can just have in this postmodern 90s ironic comedy film, it's not like you can just have like one character in the middle who's just like a drama character she still has to balance all of that tone across her own performance so it's less i mean she doesn't make a gun sound by going but uh (laughs) but it's still super impressive
2: yeah i i think that tonal balance thing is interesting too and the fact that you two were thinking about like how do we conceptualize this film in terms of genre um Kevin Williamson often refers to himself or his style or his sensibility as John Hughes meets John Carpenter um, which mm. is something he very explicitly plays out in a film called The Faculty which there's a there's a scene that plays out as a riff that is equal parts the pot smoking scene from The Breakfast Club and the blood test scene from The Thing <laughs> and it's just as bonkers <laughs> um, but I think Scream also plays with both of those as well and the way consciousness of not only slasher movies, but high school movies and and depictions of teenagers on film um, are are working themselves out on screen. It's yeah, I just think that it's doing really cool things with genre self awareness.
0: Oh, and the Weinstein's didn't manage to fuck the whole thing up either. Which
2: <laughs> well, not
1: that we know. They appear to have done to varying
0: degrees with uh, with all of the uh, all of the following Wes Craven Kevin Williamson collaborations.
1: Oh really? Oh no. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah, big uh, time.
2: Like Scream 3, <sighs> they were basically, like, they were writing it as they went. It's it's unbelievable yeah. listening to that commentary how they even got a movie. It's just... Wow. And Williamson didn't even write the third one because he was, like, he was busy, like, doing Dawson's Creek and all these other things, so they had, they basically like, scrapped Williamson's original ideas and just did something completely different. So it's, yeah. I mean, I love the film, but I think it, I can see why it didn't totally click with you well it's a it's a it's a problematic movie it's a troubled movie
0: a problematic fave
2: yeah, yeah. exactly it's, exactly
0: uh yeah like i mean i it's not that i didn't enjoy scream three i will say that scream is a movie you can enjoy on its own scream two is a movie you can enjoy if you've seen scream one like i think if you watch scream three you have to watch all four Scream movies. You can't just watch Scream 1, 2, and 3. Like, you have to go on to Scream 4. One, um, because I think Scream 4 is much better and it's a palate cleanser. But two, because I think Scream 3 is like so much of what's interesting about it is only interesting because of ways that it connects with the other films. And then Scream 4 is a film that you can enjoy even if you've only seen Scream 1. (laughs) But So as far as Scream 1. Scream 1.
1: The one you've seen. Yeah, the one I've seen. I'm so sorry I can't come. I um I was an, unable to watch <laughs> all the four screams. I was actually surprised I was able to watch three of these films in between moving. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I'm very happy I could do that at least. But um, traumatic pandemic move. This poor guy. Yeah. Yes. Good grief. Um, this is I've, I'm gonna put this on posterity. This is the first podcast I've recorded from my new place. Hooray! I hope I don't sound bad, to everyone. I'm so sorry if I do. But you sound fine. Um. Scream 1 and its relationship to its audience. So if New Nightmare was largely Wes Craven's treatise on the Hollywood system that produces his movies, uh, we've talked about how Scream is his treatise on the fans. And essentially, I think people who like horror movies, but for the wrong reasons, that's the villains in this movie. Spoiler alert. And um, what do we think craven is trying to say here other than hey uh liking movies for the wrong reasons that's bad i think it's
0: complicated right i mean uh, the the films one of the film's key lines is when the killer near the end i don't know how much are we spoiling like watch watch scream come
2: on folks. Uh, I,
1: I just love i'm gonna continue my long-standing disdain for caring about spoilers and say
2: yeah uh,
0: it was matthew lillard and the other guy it's twenty twenty one. You got
2: to see screen. <laughs> Which,
0: yeah, one of the one of the ironies of, of this film is that like um, both Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich do a great job. Um, Kevin Williamson has said that Matthew Lillard's role was like easily the most underwritten role in the movie, and I feel bad for Skeet Ulrich because like he does by any standard great work, and he's just like has the disadvantage of like. <laughs> standing next to Matthew Lillard in all of his key (laughs) scenes. Uh, Matthew Lillard going buka with a gun. (laughs) So one of the killers, as Mike pointed out to us in our prep chat, says, uh, movies don't make people psychos. They just make psychos more creative. I think think you're right to some extent that it's about how we shouldn't enjoy horror movies for the wrong reasons. But I think it's, it's a little bit more respectful of its audience than just condemning uh, a portion of it for that. I think, I think Scream is really, really tired of uh, the way horror movies are made, right? I think part of the reason why Scream became such a smash hit is because ultimately it really respects the audience, right? Like the ways in which Scream is critical, it's implicitly critical of filmmakers I think much more than the audience. It certainly has its fun with big subsets of its own audience, but I think the audience can recognize they're being respected.
2: I think it's like Kevin Williamson definitely wants to um, brush up against or push against the idea that you can blame movies for violence, but he wants to say that with a violent movie. And I think he's interested in that tension and, and doesn't even necessarily want to resolve that, I don't think. I think he wants to explore that tension and I think Craven does too, um, and I think we see Craven doing that in New Nightmare as well. But I, I think part of what interests me to uh, about Scream is the way it's dealing with um, this kind of postmodern disillusionment or that element of kind of coldness or viciousness more broadly with this feeling near the turn of the century that. Um, this illusion that we're going to solve everything through technological development um mm. is is kind of a, a lie. It's a myth, and these kids are very disillusioned, much more so than any of the teens in Craven's previous work. I think to me that that kind of, yeah, that it, the, the way it dips into that darkness despite the comedy is is really compelling to me. um that the attitudes of these characters
0: as this as the films go on, Within the universe of Scream, a series of films is made based on the events of Scream. So, the the films end up engaging with kind of the problems of making films even loosely inspired by real-life killings. Uh, the Stab series. So, that's... Yeah. St- <laughs> yeah, it's called Stab. <laughs> um, which, a part of me wishes they called it... The original working title for Scream was Scary Movie, which was... Wes Craven and um, Will, Kevin Williams' preferred title, I think, throughout production. And like they hated the title Scream at first. But I have to say that uh, I think Scream is a much better title than Scary I agree. Movie. It is.
1: Well, I mean, if the movie that turned out to be a Scary Movie is anything to go by. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: and the mask also kind of looks like Munch's Scream, that, that expression. Yeah. Exactly. So it exactly. works so well.
1: Were it's those a clever title. scream those scream masks. I'm just curious and this is just for my own personal curiosity. Did those exist before the movie scream yes. or did they only become popular yes. after
0: oh okay. They actually yeah. found those at a dollar store for the production. Yeah. Wow,
2: that's great. And they they tried so many different designs and variations and they just couldn't match. I mean it's it is such a striking mask. It's amazing how effective it is. Mm-hmm. Um I yeah, that those layers of diegesis I think are really actually quite complex in in the scream series as will was pointing out with the stab films reflecting on the scream films and you have this other um dimension regular who directed a kevin williams script later robert rodriguez he directs the first stab film um and but and and also the layers of diegesis uh near the end of the film when um uh, craven is using the score from john carpenter's halloween and cutting the action to the score playing from the TV. And Jamie Kennedy, as Randy, is on the couch watching the film, and he's saying, watch out, Jamie. He's right behind you, Jamie. And his name is Jamie, uh, of course, uh, the actor's name. Um, so yeah, the, I think the film is playing with the diegesis in really fun, compelling ways.
0: Yeah, I, w- I want to expand on that scene on the couch a little bit, because to me, it's the first part of it is the moment where I can totally get why there are people who really dislike Scream and don't feel like it's actually very clever at all. Um, and then what the scene arrives to eventually in terms of its punchline is uh, why I think Scream genuinely is very clever and very successful, where he's on the couch saying, look behind you, look behind you, Jamie. <laughs> and uh, of course, the killer slowly walks up behind him and lifts up his knife and is going, why won't you look behind you, Jamie? And it's like, on its own, the first time I watched it, I have to admit it, was like, oh, okay, this is laying on a bit thick. It's not all that interesting. It's not all that funny. I, I I wish the movie wasn't making such a thing about this, and it's one of the most obvious horror tropes. But then they go into a van, uh, like Nev Campbell goes into a, a van where there's surveillance video being taken of yes. the look behind you footage, and they start yelling, look behind you to him. Uh, but then the twist is that there's a 30-second delay on the footage they're watching, <laughs> And so what they don't realize is that they should have looked behind them to see that the killer was already walking out the door towards them to come get them. The other Scream movies do moments where like, I mean, there's one that like just moves from layer, like between layer and layer and layer of film. Um, But this is the moment in all the Scream movies where I think its idea of just using metatext I mean, there's not even really like a commentary on text going on here. This isn't, I I don't view this moment really as hugely satirical. I don't view it as um, um, a political moment. I just view it as like a really clever piece of suspense filmmaking that uses the idea of meta text in order to advance how effective the text itself is. That's basically
1: how I see this film is fundamentally different than uh, The New Nightmare. It's, it's it, it, it what feels like its purpose is different, and I think you laid it out well.
2: It's it's a, to me an interesting formal expression of a lot of the thematic concerns with media interfacing with reality. So these kids now live in a reality where um, media is embedded in their consciousness and in their understanding of the way they move through the world. And and this is a very '90s film. I mean, like it's it's about in a way the first generation that grew up obsessively watching horror films on VHS and what that does to a generation's consciousness um, and especially their consciousness around genre and around horror. Um, so I, I really like that, that scene as a kind of formal explication of this kind of layering of media um, interfacing with reality. Um, and I think that to me, that's part of what sets scream apart from uh new nightmare is because it is about that spectating of media and that consumption of media um, mm-hmm. as opposed to creation, which I guess I brought up earlier, but I think that's a key difference.
0: Here. then the, mm-hmm. then the bad guys stab each other and it's funny and scary at the same time.
2: That's a crazy scene.
0: That's
1: my, that's my favorite moment in the whole darn film is, is yeah. when they just go, it's like they go from being, the film was never naturalistic at all. Um, every every performance is this kind of heightened theatrical thing. But at that moment, they just go so far into like absolute like I don't even know any comparisons.
2: Just, Kabuki or something. It, yeah,
1: it, it's yeah. like it, it, it's it's like Herzog's most extreme moments <laughs> um, transplanted to a mainstream American film. It is genuinely unsettling because I rarely see that performance style utilized. Um, and it's just characters not doing anything because it's uh because it makes any rational sense it's just an escalating feedback loop of insanity that we see on screen and it 's unsettling not because I feel like the character's in danger but because I just i'm uncomfortable watching it
0: <laughs> yeah well, I feel like what's great about it yeah it's uh, i I think it's it's you're right in every way except that it is rational in as much as they're taking Again, the mechanics of the horror movie Mm -hmm. that they've kind of written for themselves to its logical extreme, right? Yeah. So, taken from that perspective, Mm -hmm. it's rational, and so it's it's this great culmination. What makes it great that it's both the scariest moment and the funniest moment of the movie, um, arguably, but like certainly, like the the most intense moment of the movie for me is that it's also the moment that is most calling into question. The subservience of so many horror movies and slash movies, especially to this set of mechanics um, mm-hmm. that might not even make sense anymore. So it's, in a sense, it's kind of a last stand for that. And it's I think that is the moment where Nev Campbell's character, where Sydney, stops being scared of them and starts just being disgusted like her. Yeah. Like she says, you sick fucks, you've seen too many horror movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's almost immediately after that, that she um, turns the table, runs out of the room, puts on the scream costume and starts terrorizing them
2: over the phone. Apparently it was the scene that um, Craven had the most trouble with censors about. I mean, you can see why like this kind of brightly lit suburban kitchen and these kids Mm -hmm. just there's, and, and a, a famous joke about Wes Craven is that he's always saying more blood, more blood. Apparently, he actually does say this on set all the time. And you have that gag in the beginning of New Nightmare that riffs on it. But um, <laughs> apparently the issue that the censors had with it was that the kids were using weapons that kids oh. watching the movie could find in their homes, which Wes Craven scoffed at. He's like, you are giving no credit whatsoever to the intelligence of your audience. I think he does have respect for his audiences, but he's also conscious of some of the problems within the genre that he has found a home in.
1: It's so down to earth in that way. And I think that that, that's kind of what you're getting at is that it is just this, it's a scene of two really insane people stabbing each other in a kitchen. And I think the main character's lack of agency in that moment is pretty unsettling where she's just, she's completely at their mercy. They could kill her at any point. And the only thing that's keeping her alive is just how, effing insane these two people are. They're just so caught up in their own narrative that they don't even care about her, that she can, that gives her the opportunity to, you know, turn the tables on them. Uh, But there's a long, very painfully long stretch of the scene where she is just completely just agape at what's happening (laughs) Uh, along with the
0: audience. This might be the best example of why I can't pick between Matthew Lillard and Nev Campbell as far as the best performance in the film because... (laughs) Spit um, flying. Lillard, like this is is his big scene, like obviously, like he is phenomenal in the scene. But on the other hand, the scene basically doesn't work if Nev Campbell's reaction shots aren't so damn good. Like phenomenal performances in every reaction shot she gets, like in they're not complicated shots. They're just entirely dependent on her own performance. It's great stuff. It's a great yeah. scene. I think my favorite moment in the whole film is where where Little Lord starts suffering
1: from the effects of blood loss.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what does <is> he say? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he says a bunch Wait, of these. I'm getting a little woozy here. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm dying, man. The yeah, best, it's like it's like my favorite, Lillard, dying, moment. Man. <laughs> my favorite moment, Lillard moment in the whole film is after he's like, after he's talking like he's all woozy. And then when she asks, so why did you do it? He says, like, with clear presence of mind, peer pressure. I'm far too sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but
1: he's unrecognizable as a human at that point. It's just, oh, it's so good. yeah
0: I get why the movie's sense of irony turns people off of it and why they don't like it for that. I, I get that. I get why, um, especially decontextualized from the state of 90s uh of, of slasher movies in the 90s that it was responding to. It might seem less exciting or clever. Um and for people who react that way to it, I would say, like, hey, go watch new nightmare but it's uh it's honestly it really is just such a terrific uh piece of work what makes
2: craven stand out from um his peers in a way who are all brilliant filmmakers but i think almost all of craven's work certainly all of his best work is very conceptually driven i think he's he's most distinctive in terms of his conceptual fixations formally i feel like he's he covers a lot of varying ground from film to film but i think his filmography is very like conceptually and thematically cohesive so i just wanted to say i think that's a good that's a good way of describing craven a a horror filmmaker of the mind
1: yeah i can already feel my my violent proclivities
0: coming out even more Um,
2: (laughs) becoming a more creative psycho (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) awesome
0: thanks again mike for coming on Uh, once again your book is available where's
2: it available again uh yeah so shelter for the damned is available through the publisher journal stone or you can order it through barnes and noble amazon or walmart
1: and if this episode is released when we think it'll be released it'll be available in exactly three days on the 26th of february 2021 is that right
2: that's correct yes well that does it our associate producer is
0: Paige smith if you enjoyed this episode please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use You can help keep this thing going at patreon.com slash filmformally and find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the indigenous nations of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. I'll see you in your dreams.